I haven't preached for a good six weeks. I almost feel like I don't know how. So we'll see how this goes. It's been that long. I just want to say a huge thank you again, uh, just for our congregation, how loving you guys are. Uh, you not only allowed me to take a sabbatical, uh, but you cheered me on for it. And also, thank you. You didn't disturb me. No, none of you reached out to me, which was like a part of it. Uh, so thank you for that. Although I felt really rude about that, but I'm very grateful. It was... Um, what is that phrase, distance makes the heart grow fond? Uh, I remember last week I came. This was the first thing I did. I came in here. I was so excited to see you guys. I didn't preach last week, but I came in and Pastor Abney, uh, which he spoke on the 25th, he said, hey, brother, because his church meets just before ours. And he said, looks like you gained some weight. I said, thanks, brother. That's the first thing I wanted to hear <laughs> coming back from sabbatical. You got to love it. And so I haven't eaten all week. And so pray for me. I uh, no, it's just kidding. But I was a little bit like, babe, I need to go to the gym tomorrow morning. All right. And uh, so I'm grateful for that. But I also feel like this is a bit like a first date again. It's really hard. How do you jump into a sermon again? I'm terrible at first dates. Just ask my wife. Our first date was where? Jack in the box. Shout out to me knowing how to do date life. I was 16. Give me a break. Okay. I hope you're opening to first Thessalonians. We're going to be, uh, kind of, I was processing during my sabbatical. Um, I was just reading honestly, like the whole new Testament and I, I didn't have an agenda. And I think it's really good for us to do that, right? Just come before the Lord say, I don't know what you want from me, but I know you want me. So I came before God and just, I know that God speaks to us in many ways. There's many different ways God reveals himself, but chiefly it is through the scriptures. Amen. If this doesn't align with the Bible, then what God told you, that's not what, if, if it doesn't fit the scriptures, then that was something else. That was the pizza from two days ago. Something is telling you something, but it's not God. And so it's help, helpful for us to constantly go to God's word. And first Thessalonians just kept grabbing my heart. And I decided for us to kind of gather together around this book. And the biggest question during my sabbatical, as the days kind of began to unfold, was I was asking myself this question, what kind of church will we become? Passion Creek, we're five and a half years old by God's grace. If you know, we're all about Jesus here. Do you like it how we move the Jesus bowls back up here? Reminds us of the theater days. This was our stage design at Harkins. And I realized these stinking choir stands, I'm always trying to, what do we do with these? Oh, we'll put up our Jesus letter. So every light bulb here actually represents a baptism we've had here at Passion Creek Church. And by God's grace, the last four months, we've had nine new light bulbs. Isn't that incredible? In the last four months. And so Leah was our one last week, and I was so grateful for that, and we love her, and we love her family that just began to join us. But really, I was processing, and I think if you look through the Bible, there's many different um, kind of biographies of churches, and I think I want us to zero in. We're going to be looking at three different types of churches. Not on your notes yet, but I want us to process this. We can either become the church at Ephesus, which we spent two years studying. We went through Ephesians and then First Timothy. We can become the church of Laodicea, which isn't a good thing. Or we can become the church at Thessalonica. And that is my desire for us to be like the church in Thessalonica. This series is going to be called The Cruciform Life. That's kind of how we're organizing First Thessalonians. What is the cruciform life? Cruciform literally means to live in the shape of the cross. And so we love the victory the cross has given us through Jesus Christ. But Jesus also says what? Pick up your cross. So I want us to examine what does it look like in our life to live this cruciform life where we also pick up the cross for Jesus Christ. And here's the main idea of looking at cruciform life. It's on your notes that I want us to really zero in on. If you want to experience God's resurrection power, you must endure God's cruciform pain. 
If you want the resurrection power, now there's many ways, just look at the world. There's many different ways we can fabricate power in the flesh. But if you want that resurrection power, that power that breaks strongholds, that power that mends families back together, we have to understand, be willing, and also actually do it, endure God's cruciform pain. One of the, my favorite books I read over this sabbatical was um, by Timothy Gombus. The book was called Power and Weakness. And on page 58, he has this quote that I just, I read it and I thought, this is what I want our church to do. It says, to unleash the power of God, Paul cultivated a personal presence of weakness. He was vulnerable and plain spoken. He did not try to impress them, but adopted a posture of invitation. Of course, doing so resulted in fear and tribbling, since he thereby opened himself up to rejection and mistreatment, something I worked through as I talked to you before sabbatical. I have been hurt with rejection and mistreatment, and this kind of encouraged me. This is the part of the Christian life. This is just what you do. But he had to take these risks in order to draw upon God's power. Now, we're going to kind of really look at this idea through the coming weeks. So we're not going to have this all figured out by tonight. But through the power of the Holy Spirit, I hope, I hope that we see that the cross isn't just a way to life. The cross is a way of life. And of all churches, if you look at the New Testament text, there's many great churches. But I think Thessalonians really grasp this. Let's give you some context because we're going to be in this book for quite a while. So I want us to kind of understand how we got here. If you look at Acts chapter 16, 9 through 10, we won't go there, but it actually shows the story. By the way, shout out to our youth group. They've been going through the whole book of Acts and our youth group's doing an incredible job uh, led by Shelby, who's doing awesome, Jubal, and also Celine is heading it up. I just, I love it. I love what our youth group is doing. If you are a teenager, come talk to Shelby or Jubal or Celine, and it's just growing like a wildfire and we love it. But in Anyways, in Acts chapter 16, a man appears to Paul in a dream to go to Macedonia, and there are three cities that Paul goes to, and one of them was Thessalonica. And in those three cities, this is so interesting, because God called him to go to Macedonia, but in those three cities, he was beaten, he was thrown in jail, and he was run out of town. One of the worst phrases I hate to hear is, the safest place is in the center of God's will. Have you ever heard that before? It'll preach, but it's not truth, okay? Often much, the non-safest place is in the very center of God's will. Just ask Jonah. Okay, read Acts 17, 1 through 10. Let's read that together real quick uh, to give us some context about uh, Thessalonica. Paul is on this missionary journey. This is the second one, and it's a short stint in Thessalonica because he was run off. Look, verse 1. After they passed through Amphipolia, so you just say it quick and keep moving on. They came to Thessalonica, where there's a Jewish synagogue. As usual, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days reasoned with them from the scriptures. Commentators say at most, maybe Paul sent, uh, spent six months in Thessalonica. Probably it was only six weeks. Why? Look, verse three, explaining and proving. Notice this is the Old Testament he's using, proving it was necessary for the Messiah, this is Jesus, to suffer and rise from the dead. He says, this Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah. It's the long-awaited one. It's the promised one. It's the one who is our hero. Verse 4, some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, including a large number, look, of God-fearing Greeks. This city in Thessalonica was in northern Greece, a very influential city, mainly comprised of Greeks and Jews. But look at this. I love this last line. As well as a number of the leading women. 
God has blessed our church. We have incredible leading women at our church. Amen. Uh, my favorite are, uh, their last names are Van Camps. Uh, I got three girls, no boys. Shout out to you, God. You only know how to uh, do that type of thing. I would have had a boy, but I love my girls. They're the best. Verse five. But the Jews became jealous and they brought together some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob. Sounds so 2020, doesn't it? And started a riot in the city, attacking Jason's house. Poor guy. They searched for them to bring them out to the public assembly. Like, it's, I think we can all visualize what this looks like. We've seen this in our lifetime. When they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here too. I love it. They're admitting the power of God. We don't like them. They've turned the whole world upside down. And Jason has welcomed them. They're all acting contrary to Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, Jesus. The crowd and city officials who heard these things were upset. And after taking a security bond from Jason and the others, they released them. And as you see further, Paul and Silas had to sneak away in the night and they went continuing in their journey. This is helpful for us to know the context. Paul has incredible ministry at Thessalonica, but he quickly has to leave. So a year later, he is thinking about Thessalonica. Man, God really moved there, but I want to make sure that it's really taken root. And he knows the context. This is for all the churches really during this time. Paul is writing specifically in 1 Thessalonians to give hope in a time of turmoil. To give hope in Christ and Christ alone in the middle of of chaos. And what I love is how God takes root, how the Thessalonians received Jesus. It not only was a blessing to everybody in Thessalonica, but they were an example to all of the world. Let's look at verse 1 of 1 Thessalonians. Um, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God, in, look, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. What does that mean? God is for you. He loves you. He has abundant grace in your life for you. Verse two, we always thank God for all of you, making mention of you constantly in our prayers. It truly is a pastor's heart, and I pray it's your heart as well. During my time away in sabbatical, one of my favorite things was to pray for you by name. And I, just, I say that to just let you know you were cared for and you were loved by God, but also by your pastor. Verse 3, we recall in the presence of our God and Father. These are the three kind of phrases that just grabbed me all sabbatical. Look, number one, underline this. Your work produced by faith, your labor motivated by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice this is all rooted in Christ. This isn't just, the whole world will say, yes, we love faith, hope, love. That all sounds great. No, it is in Christ. Christ is the one who's purchased these things. Our faith is in Christ, amen? Our love is from God, right? Our hope is because Christ is coming again. It's not fake. It's not sentimental. It's not saying, I just am going to choose joy today. It's because of Christ. Verse 4, for we know, and I love this little line, brothers and sisters loved by God. Did you know you're loved? You're loved by God himself. That he has chosen you. How special. Verse 5, because our gospel, other word is good news, did not come to you in word only. I believe it has to come in words. We have to explain the gospel. But here's the great thing. But also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full assurance. I pray that for Passion Creek. You know how we lived among you for your benefit. Now he's talking about his leadership. And you yourselves became imitators of us and of the Lord. 
This is like Paul's line, follow me as I follow Christ. This is discipleship. This is why we do group time. This is why we think it's so important for our leadership across the board to be healthy. This is why I love our church allowed me to take a sabbatical because we believe that healthy leaders lead healthy organizations. Amen. If you're a man and you're leading a house, a healthy man helps lead a healthy home. We need to do this first and lead by example. But look, we followed, um, You became imitators of us and of the Lord when, look, in spite of severe persecution, you welcome the message with joy from the Holy Spirit. Many of us today, we assume God is working as long as there is no disturbance, as long as there is no persecution. The Thessalonians, I'm done. The Thessalonians, they knew actually God was working in the persecution. That's going to be a big idea for us tonight. As a result, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Lord, let this be true for us. For the word of the Lord rang out from you, not only in Queen Creek and Phoenix, but in every place. Oh, sorry, wrong translation, right? Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but I pray for us, Queen Creek and Phoenix, but in every place that your faith in God has gone out. We don't even know how big of a church they were, but they were a powerful church because they allowed God to work in and through them. And that's what we want us to become. So let's pray as we kind of gather around this text. Father God, we love you. And I'm so grateful for our church. I'm grateful for our church family. God, I pray that your grace and your peace would shower us in this moment. Admittedly, God, I feel weak tonight. I feel like I don't know how to preach anymore. It's been six weeks. But God, this passage, I know it's grabbed my heart. And I pray that it would grab all of ours. And God, I just pray that we would allow you to do what only you can do. In Jesus' name I pray. Everybody says, amen. 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 In the 1940s, Viktor Frankl was thrown into Auschwitz. And he documented this experience, kind of looking at the best and worst of mankind. This book originally was titled, A Psychologist Experiences the Concentration Camp. This is now known as the bestseller, Man's Search for Meaning. Any of you have read this book, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl? Incredible work. Um, I'm actually reading it right now. I'm not finished. He has this line in here that was kind of the thesis of the book, and I think it's so helpful. It says, life is not primarily a quest for pleasure, as Freud believed, or a quest for power, as Alfred Adler taught but a quest for meaning. He was able to see that even in the midst of severe suffering, just like we're seeing in 1 Thessalonians, in the midst of severe suffering, there were still people who were living the good life, living with purpose and with meaning. So Viktor Frankl's whole thesis is saying a good life, a life worth living, has nothing to do with circumstances. And people think he's so incredible and smart, and he is, but read your Bible, okay? This is what the text has always told us. Frankel, he identifies three elements to a life worth living. And again, he seems so brilliant, but I actually believe it's rooted here in verse four in the passage, uh, sorry, verse three in the passage we're going to be reading and constantly kind of looking at tonight. He said, number one, the biggest thing for a life worth living, a life of purpose and meaning is number one, true love. To serve each other in community. This is not just marriage, but just communal love. Number two, he said, is hard work you got to find something to put your hand to the plow. We are created to create. And number three, courage to suffer. He said, life isn't complete without suffering. You have to take account for suffering and how you face it matters. Now we see these three elements in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. Thessalonica was drenched with purpose. 
because they understood work produced by faith, labor motivated by love, and endurance inspired by hope. So the question we have to ask, ask ourselves, what kind of church are we going to become? You see these th- two different triads in this biblical text. You see work, labor, endurance, but you also see a triad that you and I are more familiar with because of many passages of scripture, faith, love, and hope. And many people do not put those two together. When we are able to put both of these together in unison, this is when the power of God takes over. So what kind of church will we become? A first option, like the church in Ephesus, we can become a church consumed with power. We can become a church consumed with power. In other words, life is all about work, labor, and endurance and about being better than those around us. This church, if you read in Revelation chapter 2, we won't go there because of time, but the, the church at Ephesus got so good at doctrine, so good at work, labor, and endurance, that they, quote, Jesus says to them, you forgot your first love. So what they do, they threw out faith, love, and hope, became a church based on works, making it all about them and their promise, what they hoped for was earthly dominance. We see this happening in the church a lot. A lot of people freaking out on the news, trying to win this culture war because they don't like how they're no longer in power. And I submit to you, there's a better way. The second kind of church we can become is a church consumed with pleasure. This was the church at Laodicea. So for them, they were just saying, we're, we're a church full of faith, love, and hope. This is what we do. But they were not willing to work. They weren't going to put in the labor And there was no way they're going to endure. So for them, their hope as they gathered together wasn't earthly dominance. That's way too much work. They just wanted to enjoy earthly delight. They just wanted to just have pleasure, come to church, feel good about yourselves, and go home. And I am saddened because I see a lot of our churches, some of them are all about power. Others of them are all about pleasure, and I don't see God moving in either of those. I don't see a life that is bathed in the fruit of the Spirit. And that's why I pray in the midst of these, this tension, in the midst of these hard times. This is what Paul is writing to. There's severe persecution, and it's continuing for us. May we become, number three, a church consumed with purpose. Like Viktor Frankl is submitting, but even more than that, the Apostle Paul himself. This was the church of Thessalonica. They were able to wed together faith, and work. They were able to put together love and labor, hope and endurance. And their hope wasn't earthly dominance. It wasn't even earthly delight, but it was for an eternal delight with God and God himself bringing down the throne to earth. So that's really the question as we remain. I need to get going. I haven't preached in a while, so I knew I was like, Trey, you got to be quick. You're going to want to talk forever. I won't. How do we integrate these two triads? You know, how do we not become this power works-based salvation church? I don't want us to do that. But how do we not become the church that's just whatever, everything, let's just be lukewarm. How do we make sure we love and we labor? We have faith that works. We have hope that endures. So let's just look at this. Let's look at the first line here. Your work produced by faith. What does that mean? What is Paul saying here? I'm not going to lie, I was reading a lot of commentaries trying to hear people's kind of understanding of this passage, and it blows me away how a lot of people just kind of fly by this line. Because I think it's something we hear a lot, faith, hope, and love, right? But there's so much here, I knew that my whole message here had to be centered around this. So what is work? Helpful to know, theologically, if you study your Bible, God created work before the fall. I know a lot of us think work is a curse, 
but it's not. It is cursed, part of it, but not work itself. We were actually created to create. We're designed to rule and reign with God. And something I noticed during sabbatical, when you don't work, it actually affects your emotional health, your physical health, your spiritual health. Like we're designed to work. And you can overwork for sure, and that's a sin. But you can also underwork, and that is a sin as well. And so Timothy Keller, I believe he's the one who kind of described, what is work? Work is simply bettering humanity. Whatever you're doing, you are doing something to help society, and you are bettering humanity and expanding the kingdom of God. Sadly, we did a workplace workshop uh, last year. This is so important because I think the church as a whole has really ignored the, the purpose of work. And we've kind of made it only like just try to get the best salary and tithe your money. Amen. Praise God to the church, and that's what work is for. But it's much, much more than that. What is faith? We say a lot at our church, faith is, about, is not about passing a test. It's about placing your trust. Jesus is righteous in our place. He's able to say grace to you in peace. He's able to say all these things that we are loved by God. He's chosen. We have this power. Why? Because Christ is our righteousness. Amen. Christ is our hope. We're putting all of our hope in Christ and Christ alone. But for centuries, we have not understood how is work produced by faith. We constantly pit these two against each other, but they should not be. Write this down. Faith is not opposed to working. It is opposed to earning. This is something to wrestle with, especially if you maybe have like an LDS background. You ha- read the book of James. There is an idea here that faith does work. You need to have the faith, but then that faith, if it's truly taken in your life, it begins to work. And so we don't work, so God begins to get involved in our life. We work because God is already involved in our life. I think this is helpful. I think for a church that becomes an example that lives out this gospel power, we have to understand how faith and work go together. When I was on my sabbatical, it was, I was kind of upset with my father because I still poured concrete. I still kind of ripped out carpets. I still did a lot of this labor. And I was like, God, I, you know, I was just so frustrated. Um, but I started to recognize that the, the, I was really processing, okay, what is work? How much should I do it during my sabbatical and all this stuff? And kind of one of the, the things I was, I was processing and meditating. And I think that I've been really, God has been gracious in giving me this word is, is work is meaningless unless we invite God into it. Your work is meaningless. If Read the book of Ecclesiastes. But if you invite God into it, even when you're working during sabbatical and you should not be working, invite God into it. it doesn't, faith doesn't make the work easier, but it does make it more meaningful. It brings value to the vigor. And so I want us to see, and I hope and I pray, that we become a church that understands God, I believe in faith, you are involved, you are working, but that means because you are working, I am joining you in this work, and I am going to work. It's not to earn, it's not so that God loves me more. Grace and peace is already yours, but we can work alongside of him. Number two, your labor motivated by love. What does labor mean? Labor simply means physical and mental exertion. I was trying to figure out how is this different from work, Paul? Work kind of, I think, insinuates you're building something. Labor doesn't. It just simply means you're sweating. It doesn't necessarily mean you see progress, but you're just putting in the time. But your labor, this hard work, physical exertion, is motivated by what? By love. This is agape love. One of my favorite definitions of agape love is to pursue someone's well-being over your own. So in other words, contrary to society today, people say love is tolerance. It's much more than that. 
Some people say love is affection or an emotion. It's that, but it's much more than that. Oftentimes, love is an action that requires physical and mental exertion. I want us to really think about how is God calling us to take this love that we sing about and praise God about and put it into labor. Write this down to help us understand a little bit more. Love is, against, is, is not against labor. It is against manipulating favor. What do I mean? Love is not against labor. Just ask your wife. Amen? Right? If you love, it means you work. It means you serve. It means there are days when you do things you don't want to do. But most of us, we only labor in our relationships because we're trying to manipulate a situation. We want something. I'll tell you what. If I want to go get ice cream, I got to make sure I do the dishes first before I tell Jordan, let's go get ice cream, right? I'm manipulating the situation. But true love says, okay, it's so freeing when you learn this. I'm going to love without expectation. I'm going to serve without wanting anything back. And the reality is that the gospel has really taken hold of your life. You're able to love because you don't need anybody else's love because you're already loved by the Father. Amen. Thanks. I appreciate that. Um, how can we, okay, this is the, another thing I was thinking through. For love to really work in our lives, and again, my prayer is that God would allow us to be the church like at Thessalonica, that loves by laboring. And one of the biggest blessings I see is when we have volunteers at our church serving in areas of ministry that do not directly benefit them. What I love, we have so many people serving in our kids' ministry, and we love it. And so many of them actually don't have kids. And I think maybe that's why they still like the kids. You know what I'm saying? But amen, praise God. Maybe that light bulb moment, now I get it. But it's so great because it doesn't actually benefit them at all. Like, it's not like I'm serving in kids. And if you are serving in kids and you have kids, that's amazing too. I'm not saying you're bad. But I, I love that there are people, but they say, okay, I'm here to serve the kingdom. And this isn't even directly serving me, but I'm here to serve Christ. One of the biggest things I was reflecting in my last five and a half years, whenever we do stuff in ministry, things have been difficult. But there have been times where I've been called to help out other churches, and, and a pastor said, isn't a blessing that, that, that God helps you grow fruit on other people's trees? That is so true. So many times the last five and a half years, I do something here, and it slowly goes or whatever. I help another pastor out, and it just takes off for them. Lord, can you make that happen here? You know what I'm saying? But I think God does that to train us. And I was praising God as my sabbatical, thinking, thank you that you're forming my character because agape love takes joy in growing fruit on other people's trees. How are you looking to bless somebody and honestly in a way that you do not get blessed back? That is labor motivated by love. Most of us, our labor is motivated by ego. Our labor is motivated by manipulation. Our labor is motivated, but we scratch your back for you to scratch mine. But agape love, God's love, grows fruit on other people's trees. Number three, your endurance inspired by hope. Your endurance inspired by hope. This word endurance literally just means steadfast. It means not to be a sore loser. It means like you are still putting in the reps and you're doing it the right way. Dr. Eric Mason, he says, endurance is the capacity to hold out without selling out, just to continue to press forward. This endurance is inspired by what? Hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. What is our hope? Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ is coming again. 
So we believe because we're between the risen and the coming again, we have the first fruits, we have joy, we have shalom in part. We know that God blesses us and we experience his presence today, but we also know the Lord is coming back. Amen. Our hope and our desire, you look at this in First Thessalonians towards the end, we talk about things like end times theology. Our hope is that everything kind of stinks now, but we're still pressing forward because we know Jesus will make all things right. Amen. And so I can be doing this now, even though it doesn't look like I'm contributing. I will, because I know this is not a battle that we will lose. Jesus will eventually allow us to win. That's why it's really helpful for us in this time of tension. And it feels like the church is being persecuted. And it feels like it's hard to have faith. We need to endure. We need to keep finishing the race. Let's put it this way. Hope is not against difficulty. It is against hypocrisy. Hope, you can still have hope even when life is difficult. When God promises you a life of hope that does not promise you a life that has no problems. A false gospel that is really popular today is, and and I think some people mean it rightly, but I think a lot of people don't. This whole phrase, and I've used it before. Caleb calls me out every time. Um, The best is yet to come. You ever heard that phrase before? The best is yet to come. That works, but sometimes it doesn't, you know? That works if you're saying, like, eventually when Jesus comes back, everything will be better, yes. But I think most of us, we think the best is yet to come. Therefore, like, within this next year, I'm going to get a better salary within the two years. I'll finally afford a home in Queen Creek. Amen. What in the world is going on, right? The best is yet to come. The reality is it's not always true. And I think a lot of us, we put our hope in these circumstances. But the reality is our hope is in our Savior. Therefore, look, when we put our hope in these circumstances, when the circumstances don't come, a lot of us no longer endure. This is why I think a lot of Christians, they call it deconstructing, and a lot of people are leaving the faith. Because it's not easy to be a Christian now. But our hope was never in these better circumstances. Our hope is in a better Savior. Amen? Amen. And this is who we are. So what hope is, look, life will be difficult, but we're going to keep on holding on to hope. Therefore, we're not going to be hypocrites. We're going to keep following Jesus on the good days as we are following Jesus on the bad days. And I think this is so important. Look at verse 4. It says, For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full assurance. You know how we lived among you for your benefit. Look, and you yourselves became imitators of us and of the Lord when, look, in spite of severe persecution, you welcomed the message with joy from the Holy Spirit. Despite severe persecution, you still followed our model of a faith that works, a a love that labors, and a hope that endures. Friends, how we win is just as important as what we win. I'm going to say it again. For the church at large, how we win is just as important as what we win. For those who are alarmists, this is a quote for you just to make sure that you stress out and don't sleep well tonight. Uh, Here's the quote. Carl R. Truman, I think it's true. The days when Christians could be both respected by their society and faithful to their beliefs, look, are drawing to, are drawing rapidly, sorry, to a close. Welcome to church. Now, we could look at this and go, oh my, what are we going to do? You know what I'm saying? This is terrible. You know what? They're mean to us. Let's be mean to them. 
you know what? They're making these movies. Let's make worse movies, okay? Let's start this battle. We'll show you. We'll show them. They labeled us. (laughs) We're going to label you. And I think what's so important, and let me just say this graciously. I understand I'm in this weird age where whatever. There are some people in the back half of life, they are so emphatic on winning. They don't care how. And what I'm terrified of is your children are seeing how you're fighting. And because of how you're doing it, they're not going to be fighting along with you. Does that make sense? These things like culture wars, these things like trying to dunk on people. It may feel good for a certain generation, but the generation under says, you know what? That, that doesn't look anything like Jesus. I, I don't want any of that. And what's happening is they're saying, okay, that's the church. I'm going to follow Jesus, but I'm not going to go to church. That's wrong. Wrongo. Right? So we have to realize, and I love this, this endurance inspired by hope. We have to keep being people of the way of Jesus. However hostile they are, that does not dictate our hospitality. However aggressive they are, that doesn't mean we'll no longer be gentle. We're going to act like we're winning, even though it looks like we're losing, because we know we're eventually going to be winning. Amen? And sore losers whine and cry and label and get mad. That's not us. Please let that not be us. The world is watching, and our kids are watching. How we win is just as important as what we win. I want us to end with this. So I think we have to ask ourselves, what kind of church will we become? The church at Thessalonica? Drenched with purpose, he's that faith works, love, labors, hope endures. We're steadfast, we're falling away of Jesus, even when it doesn't look like things are going well. We can become like the church of Ephesus, a church consumed with power, like we mentioned in Revelation 2. They, they're all about dunking on people. Hear me, hear me. The church of Ephesus was known more for what they were against than what they were for. I pray that's not us, and honestly, I don't think, I don't think that's a temptation for us. But I think this next one is, woe to us if we become like the church at Laodicea, a church consumed with pleasure. Let's look at Revelation 3, verse 14 and following. Revelation 3, I've been praying through. I want us to be like the church at Thessalonica, but there is a possibility we might become like the church at Laodicea. Verse 14, write to the angel of the church in Laodicea. Thus says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation. That's Jesus, by the way. Okay, I know your works that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you were lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, in other words, I don't like being disturbed. I don't like disturbed. I just, whatever, I'm just going to stay kind of in this pleasure zone. I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Verse 17. For you say I'm rich. I've become wealthy and need nothing. And you don't realize that you are wretched pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich, white clothes so that you may be dressed in your shameful nakedness not to be exposed, and ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see. But keep learning. As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be zealous and repent. I want us to look at this last phrase. See, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice 
and opens the door. I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. What does this mean? See, I'm trying to think, what will make us a church at Thessalonica versus a church at Laodicea? How do we take this suffering and this disturbance and all these issues, and instead of becoming just like the world, how do we rise above it in love that labors, in faith that works, and in hope that endures? And I think that Thessalonica versus Laodicea, this is so important here. I think God's deliverance in your life is knocking. Like it says here, I knock at the door. The problem is it sounds a whole lot like disturbance. God is trying to move in the life, in your life in a way, but it's in an area that is disturbing to you, that is bothering you. In this church of Thessalonica, the reason it says I came not only in word, but in power with the power of the Holy Spirit. Anytime the Holy Spirit moves, it's because he first disturbed you and you said, okay, I'm going to take this disturbance. And instead of ignoring it, instead of saying, no, I'm fine. Instead of just looking away from your wounds of your past, you take the disturbance. You say, okay, God, what are you doing with it? What are you calling me towards? The church at Thessalonica saw disturbance was a part of the deliverance. The church of Laodicea says, no, disturbance that must not be from God. No, in severe persecution, that's when God does his greatest work. How is God disturbing you in your life, but you assume it's the enemy? But what if it's God? Like disturbance is like the doorknob towards God's deliverance. You can't get God's deliverance without grabbing the doorknob. And just like a doorknob, for you and I, we need to grab that disturbance and turn it. We need to take what God is doing, this disturbance in our life, and say, I'm turning it over to you. I'm going to grab this faith. I'm going to let it work. I'm going to grab on to this love, and I'm going to let it labor. I'm going to grab on to this hope, and I'm going to let it endure. And you're saying, Trey, that's work-based. You grab the door and open, like that's you earning salvation. Look, opening doors is not an Olympic sport, okay? It's the easiest thing in the world. Here's what's great about opening doors. It doesn't say anything about your hand, but it says everything about your heart. Are you willing to face this disturbance that God is introducing in your life? And are you willing to stop running away from it, but to grab it and to turn it towards the Father and see what God can do through you? I don't know what that disturbance is for you. It could be a physical pain. It could be a relational pain. Could be a million things. But what if instead of thinking it's just this terrible thing and it will never get better and God can never use it, what if this is actually an invitation for you to become more like God and to be loved by God and to be used by God for Him to dwell with you and eat with you? Take that disturbance and allow it to be used for God's deliverance.